Good morning. I'm Angie, and I'm reading today's scripture from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thanks, Angie. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to do a couple of things as we start our time today. And I'll be honest, I kind of debated what to do, what to say, how to try to lay hold of the events of this last week, the last couple of weeks, the last couple of years. And I struggled. I said, I don't think I've got anything to say that hasn't already been said. And I sort of felt this wave of exhaustion kind of creep over me as I thought, uh, these are all too familiar feelings. And the dread that comes with that phrase, here we go again that I think we've all grown so tired of. And so what I wanted to do at the risk of of just sort of derailing my entire heart and mind, I just want to honor the children and the teachers that lost their lives. And I'd like to do that just by reading their names, by saying them out loud, by reciting them together We remember what this is about. We become acutely aware of what we've lost. I apologize in advance that I'm gonna butcher some of these names. Devia Alyssa Bravo, 10. Her name is Heaven, spelled backwards. Jacqueline Casares, nine. McKenna McKenna Lee Elrod, 10. Jose Manuel Flores, Jr., 10. Eliana Garcia, 10. Irma Garcia, 48. Lucia Garcia, 10. Amory Joe Garza, 10. Javier Lopez, 10. JC Carmelo Luebanos, 10. 
Tasmata. 10. Miranda Mathis. 11. Eva Morales. 44. Alethea Ramirez. 10. Annabel Rodriguez. 10. Maite Rodriguez. 10. Alexandria Lexi Rubio, 10. Layla Salazar, 10. Jyla Nicole Siguero, 10. Eliana Cruz Torres, 10. And Rogelio Torres, 10. Lord, we pray your mercy. We pray the power of your presence with all who grieve in the most profound ways. that you would surround each one with love, with courage, with mercy and presence. And that you would stand with them as they face the impossible task of holding their grief today. And we struggle to do that today as well, God. That as we come into worship and into your presence, we hold this horror, we hold this heaviness in our own hearts today. And we offer you truly a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of worship, knowing no other way to respond than to step into your presence and cry out to you, Lord, and attend ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I also have, uh, gosh, so difficult. Beautiful update from Mozambique. Uh, Pastor Tim is back. He arrived back on Friday afternoon. He is as jet-lagged as you might imagine he might be, having traveled thousands of miles and ever after having spent time on the ground in Mozambique, pouring out his heart to hundreds and hundreds of people present. The Lord did beautiful things in Mozambique this past week. Every pastor who arrived was given training on the basics of the Christian faith. And this is crucial because many of these pastors are emerging as leaders in their newly found churches, not because they are theologically grounded or because they are spiritually prepared, but because they are the chiefs or the leaders of their villages. And their villages have turned their lives over to Jesus in mass. And so now they have become de facto pastors and leaders of their churches. And they need training and the very basic tenets of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how to lead effectively and with character and with integrity. Sometimes confronting their own cultures and their own patterns of belief and behavior that they have been uh, living with all their lives. And so this was a crucial part of what Tim went to do. Every single one of them received an audio Bible to take back to their villages. This is also crucial. Many of them are not literate. And so an audio Bible allows them to hear and receive the Word of God in a fruitful way in their native language, in a way that it can take root and blossom in their lives. And those 
that are literate received print Bibles in their native languages to take back to their villages so that they can teach the Word of God to their communities and to their villages and to their tribes. 41 people were baptized this past Wednesday. Crucial connections and collaborations were made to continue the work and the expansion of the kingdom all throughout Africa. And I mentioned this this morning because I think it illustrates kind of the feeling that I have today, this tension, this incredible, almost impossible kind of tension that while horrible things have happened this week, beautiful things have happened this week. And I think it maybe perfectly illustrates what it's like to walk as a follower of Jesus today. To hold an incredible tension. The horror and the grief and the trauma, the anger, the frustration, all the different emotions that well up when horrible, horrible, horrible things happen to the most vulnerable, most innocent people we have. And I hold intention as a follower of Jesus that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is active, that God is pursuing the kingdom establishment on the earth, even though I don't see it, I don't feel it, I don't experience it right before my eyes. And I hold intention those things this morning as I worship with you. And so it's out of that, out of that tension that we struggle and we strain just to turn our attention to the word of God today and try to hear and to try to listen and to try to attend our hearts to the spirit of God, to try to remain faithful, maybe even out of habit to just come and be and show up and see what happens in the midst of that. So we honor that intention this morning as we worship him together. So thanks again to Angie for reading our passage today. An all too familiar parable for some. But this is one of my favorite passages because I love how the conversation emerges. I love how the conversation turns and rolls forward through an exchange of questions. And this is particularly fun for me because I've spent the last couple of years hanging out with a lot of rabbis. It was my first opportunity to get to know and hang out with rabbis, actual, in-the-flesh rabbis, ultra-Orthodox, card-carrying rabbis. And I can picture now, more clearly than ever, how these conversations emerge. Because as I hang out with my rabbi buddies, the hospital, I realized that, that their whole training, their whole lives, their whole exploration and understanding of scripture is based on sitting around and asking each other questions. Let's become curious together about what it is that we're trying to talk about. That's how they get after the deeper meaning of things, by asking probing questions. It's been a really fun exercise to learn about as a mostly kind of Western-minded Christian. This exchange of questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The expert in the law comes to Jesus with it. What is written in the law? Not an answer. Question. How do you read it? Again, not an answer, but another question. Classic stuff that's going on. And to understand a little bit about what's happening is People often sort of claim to be the Messiah back in Jesus' day. People were kind of constantly rising up in the ranks and trying to become leaders, become influential people, even claim that they were the Messiah, that they were the next sort of person that people should listen to. And so the teachers of the law were like, oh, no, no, wait a minute, hold on. You've got to get sort of your uh, Jewish inquisition has to happen. They've got to be interrogated. They've got to answer some questions, as it were. It was their duty to interrogate anybody who came along. 
And so finally, we get an answer to the question, how do you read it? Jesus' response is a quoting of Scripture, one famous to every Jew, a quoting of the second half of the Shema, which was a daily prayer. It's kind of like our version of, uh, you know, our Father who art in heaven, right? This is like the daily morning, evening prayer that any Jew would read or recite to themselves. It comes from Deuteronomy 6 as well as Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Do it and you will live. Done. But not done. More questions emerge, right? This last question, loaded. Who is my neighbor? The scholar asks. Who is my neighbor? It's not really a question itself that's loaded, but why the question is asked at all that Jesus wants to respond to, right? Because sometimes a question is a question, and sometimes a question is a statement, right? Sometimes a question is a claim, probing for something deeper. This expert in law kind of feels like there's more going on behind Jesus. I'm going to poke around until I find something important. Luke gives us some insight into why this question is being asked at all. In verse 29, the motivation that the question uh, is bringing up, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. The scholar is a crafty one. He feels the need to self-justify himself only because he realizes that he's not in control of this conversation. He wants to sort of probe and dig back again, right? Who is my neighbor? He wanted to know the answer to it because if he gets an answer from Jesus, who is my neighbor, then he can go about and fulfill that action, fulfill that duty, fulfill that responsibility, and just check off another box on his list of things that he wants to achieve. And so in typical rabbinical fashion, Jesus does what? He tells him a story. Let me tell you a story. The story is the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And I say that because this parable is often understood as as a parable about helping the needy, right? I've often heard this passage quoted in, in this notion of we've got to help the needy. We've got to help others in need. And that's absolutely true. It's absolutely a story about helping others in need. But I'm not sure that that's the actual purpose of this particular parable at its core. There are 560 verses from Genesis through Revelation that deal with the responsibility of God's people to help the poor and the oppressed. More than 560 verses. Let me just give you a couple of them. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever is kind to the needy honors God. There's one of them. Proverbs 21.13, If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Isaiah 58.10, If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. 1 John 3.17, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And on and on and go the other 556 plus verses will tell us. So the message of compassion and the need to help others uh, is absolutely present in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but it is not primary. It wouldn't be necessary for Jesus to remind a scholar in the scriptures of the 500 some odd verses in the Old and New Testament about helping the poor. That was not his intention. I think it was deeper, more pointed, more challenging than just helping the poor. And maybe just an interesting point about all this. If you're a rabbi, a rabbinic scholar, if you're a Jewish scholar, your entire worldview about what it means to be a righteous person is absolutely based on your ability and capacity to fulfill the law 
consistently every day, right? That's pretty much it. I'm not saying that that's it. That's a very tall order, right? Very tall order. My job as a Jewish scholar would be to fulfill the law each and every day. The dietary laws, the laws about clothing, the law about language, the laws about prayer, the laws, all of it is to do that every single day. And so if we were to stand in defense of this scholar, we would say to him, yes, I understand that you want to know what the rules are about who your neighbor is so that you can add it to the list of things that you need to do concerning your neighbor so that you can maintain a level of righteousness that is bound up in your faith tradition. You with me? So that's kind of what he's digging at. He's trying to understand what Jesus is talking about, and he's quizzing him. This is the premise of his life. If I am good and virtuous, God will accept me. This is, in the end, a kind of self-justifying religion, right? He wanted to justify himself, and so he asked the question, who is my neighbor? The gospel, friends, is not self-justifying religion. It's transformation through salvation by grace alone. It's not self-justifying religion. It's transformation through salvation by grace alone. So there are three teachings that I think emerge, at least three teachings that emerge uh, in what I'm going to call gospel neighboring. Right? How do we become a gospel neighbor to reveal how the gospel is not about religious sort of self-justification, but to sort of weed through the challenges that we face as we're called to be the kind of neighbor that Jesus is describing in this parable. And the first one is this. We have to ask the question, who is my neighbor? The who is super important because it's natural to want to give aid to people that are like you, and that you like, and that like you, right? That's just human nature. It's like birds of a feather, right? We all want to be around and help and communicate with and commune with and be a part of people that are like us and that we like and that like us back. But Jesus pushes back on this in a beautiful and powerful way. And I think we need to hear this. We need to hear this maybe now more than ever as we stand at another sort of critical crossroad in American history. Who is my neighbor? We cannot limit the who of my neighbor. We have to recognize our own limits our own boundaries, our own uncomfortabilities with different kinds of people that we're surrounded by. Because this parable famously, famously sets into motion a picture of a Jewish man in the road, beaten and left for dead, right? A priest and a Levite, the highest most respected spiritual leaders from within the Jewish culture are walking by this man in the road. Maybe that's understandable. Maybe they were taught in their younger age, like I was growing up from my family, oh, no, no, don't get involved. Don't look, don't look. My mom would literally cover my eyes when something was happening. Put her hand over my face. Don't look, don't look, because if I don't look, I don't see. And if I don't see, then maybe I don't know. And if I don't know, then I can't act. Are you with me? Don't look. Don't look at that. 
As a child, I thought to myself, maybe she doesn't want my mind to be corrupted. Maybe she's protecting me from something that I'm not supposed to see, and so she doesn't want my mind to go in a wayward direction or to be unduly influenced or traumatized by the things that were going on around me. And then I thought back about my childhood growing up, and I realized that my parents were not interested in protecting me from traumatization. This is the same family that at the age of 10 took me to watch Scarface at a move-in drive-in theater in Millbrae, California. Some of you know the drive-in movie theater in Millbrae, California. Scarface, right? 10 years old. Not quality parenting, right? I've seen them all. They were not interested in protecting me from the traumas or the darkness of the world. They were protecting me because they had a mindset that said, look away, don't get involved. Because if you don't look, you don't see. And if you don't see, you don't know. And if you don't know, you don't do. That's right. So the priest and the Levite walk away. They cross to the other side. They turn a blind eye and they walk. I'm not going to cast stones at the priest and the Levite, right? My mother would have done the same thing. Look away. Don't get involved. And yet, who does get involved? This is a beautiful story, right? The Samaritan gets involved with the Jewish man in the street. And the Samaritan, for those of you who don't know, the Samaritan is the sworn sort of religious cultural enemy opposite of the Jew. They had a different religious system, a different set of beliefs, and they were opposed to each other by birth. This was Hatfields and McCoys, right? For those of you who like that part of history. We don't even know why we hate each other, but this is what we've been told from birth. Don't hang out with those Jewish people. Don't hang out with those Samaritans. Okay, Mom. Okay, Dad, I got it. I don't even care to ask the question of why. I just do. And yet there is a Samaritan, and we'll just think of him as someone who is open-minded, sees another human being in the street, happens to be a Jewish man, and he runs to help that man in the road at risk to himself, which we'll talk about later. And what the picture teaches us, what the story tells us right off the bat is, the neighbor that I am intended to help can be anyone in need that I'm in a position to respond to. And I mean anyone. If a Samaritan can help the Jew in the road, then you and I, friends, are called to help anybody in the road. And that might require of us something. I don't say that lightly. That's not an easy task that Jesus is putting out there for us, right? This is not like, hey, you should pray more, be a better Christian, and go help that other person in the road. That's not the story behind here. This is a very challenging moment. When somebody else has a different belief system than you, and that belief system is opposed to your belief system, where what that person believes is a rejection of who you are, right? Because being Jewish is not just a religion, it's an identity, it's a culture, it's an ethnicity. It's bound up to everything that, that, we, that makes us who we are. And the Samaritan would have rejected all of that, would have been taught to hate it and to revile it. And yet he says, I'm going to help you. Not an easy task. To walk into a room when somebody has need and to know before you even walk into the room that that person doesn't want you there. You might be the last person that they want in the room. And yet you're the first person, dare I say, the only person there in the room. 
That's the picture that we're painting. Not an easy task. We have to hold our own beliefs, hold our own identity, hold our own sense of ourselves as we assist, assist and accompany and come alongside somebody who has tremendous need, who believes and thinks and acts and breathes in ways that are diametrically opposed to what we hold. Not an easy task. But that's what we're talking about. Our neighbor is anyone in need that we are in a position to help. And I'll tell you this. If you pray a prayer today, you might say, God, I need you to open up my eyes and open up my heart to see who around me is the one in need. He's going to pick a good one for you. Right? So I'm just offering you a warning. Right? It's like the warning label. Comes with the package. If you pray a prayer that says, Lord, I need to learn this parable. I need to learn how to love people that are different from me. Right? He's not going to pick somebody that's just vanilla different than you. He's going to pick somebody that's going to be really challenging. Right? It might even be a relative. So be careful what you pray. There's a second limitation that I think we put on this question of who is my neighbor or this question behind the question, or this concept behind the question. The second thing that we kind of wrestle with is the when, my neighbor. This is a question of when. We limit the when. And what I mean by the when is this. There is a deep belief that I think we all hold, if we're really honest with ourselves, transparent with what we really believe, and it's that when something bad happens to somebody else, there's something inside of us that believes they either brought it upon themselves or that somehow, cosmically, and I don't know how we know this, they deserve it. It's not always the case. But when it comes to people who we don't deem as innocent, it's easy to have less compassion because there's a belief that we have, either because we know something about them or, or not, that we sort of think, well, they kind of brought it on themselves. And this is a real thing, by the way. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that that's easy. I don't say, hey, shame on you for doing that. You know, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm just sort of trying to be honest about what Jesus is maybe digging at inside of this thing because compassion fatigue is absolutely a real thing. It's absolutely a real thing. I talk about it all the time with the staff at the hospital. Wave after wave of COVID, patient after patient, and not just the COVID stuff, but patients who come in and honestly because they're not compliant or because they're you know, not doing the things that they're being asked to do or told or prepared to do. It's like, hey, if you don't take care of your diabetes, then you're going to be back here in a couple of weeks. And if you don't take care of, of this wound and really start to change, you know, some of the things you're doing, you're going to be back here in a couple of weeks. And we'll see you again. And we have them, frequent flyers, right, all the time. And I keep them on a list and they pop right back up and I'll go, hey, good to see you again. Right? And we have the same conversation again. Right? And sometimes there's contrition. Sometimes like, yeah, well, you know. And around and around, like a crazy kind of, you know, wild merry-go-round. Right? And I see time and time again, the unfortunate aspect of this is that often their care is not exactly the best or given with the best spirit or attitude because after a while you're like, come on, man. You know? You really want to keep doing this? And so because we are human beings, limited as we are, constantly faced with the same sort of crazy, repetitive cycle of dysfunction that we experience with other people who think and believe differently than us, you see how this overlaps? We have to confront their need by caring for them, even though we realize that they think and believe differently from us, 
that they're not listening to any of the things that we're telling them to think or do or believe, and that we're going to do this all over again next Tuesday. Compassion fatigue is a real thing. And I think it's insidious, and it happens to us as followers of Jesus, however well-intended, however compassionate we are, we pick and choose our compassion based upon what we believe about the person that we're being compassionate toward. And that our capacity to care for other people who are stuck in their own cycle of dysfunction is naturally diminished because we start to believe things about them that may or may not be true. And Jesus looks at this story, and he says, look what happens here. This complete stranger, enemy, opposite, whatever you want to call the Samaritan, comes alongside in a tremendous moment of need and says, I'm going to help you. I don't care how you got here. I don't care what, what it is that you did or didn't do to get here into this moment. I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to help you. And can you imagine for just a second if Jesus operated in the same sort of human economy that we operate in and started to help only the people that would quote-unquote help themselves? That if Jesus started to pick and choose the people that he would assist who are face down on the road, and if Jesus decided that from the cross he was going to only help the people who really deserved help or who would receive that help and do something fruitful and productive with it, if he was only going to help the people that really, really deserved his assistance, where would we all be, friends? I wouldn't be here. This is the foolishness and the beauty of the gospel of grace. We don't earn our spot because of how good we do. We don't earn our capacity to receive grace from Jesus Christ because there's some guarantee that when we do, we're going to work it out properly. Jesus says, I offered you grace and the grace of salvation because I already know you're going to be back here next Tuesday. And I'll help you then too. Are you with me? That's not an easy word. That's not an easy gospel. That's not Jesus' light. That's not a weak kind of faith. That sounds near impossible to me. To keep caring, to keep wanting. Something about my capacity to care for the needs of others around me, especially the people that I don't like and that don't like me and that aren't like me, something is going to have to happen in my heart. Something is going to have to expand my own ability and capacity and understanding of how to care for other people around me. I'm going to have to broaden my definition of who my neighbor is. Here's the third thing, the other limit that we put on it, right? How much? How much for my neighbor? How far should I go? And again, not an easy answer, right? I'm all about respecting boundaries. I think there's absolutely a human limit to your capacity to care for the needs of others, particularly folks who are going to be challenging and taxing for you. I think there's absolutely a boundary that we must keep, right? There is a point in which you are not the best person to help this other one in need, right? I absolutely believe that. At the very same moment, I look at what the Samaritan has done, and I think to myself, there is a lesson here bound up in this. He goes way beyond, right? He tends to the person's needs who are in the road, Sets him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, gives the manager some money, says, I'll come back, whatever extra expense there is. Take care of this person until they are healed. Do it all. Whatever it is, I'll fit the bill. 
And he absolutely walks with them. There's no preaching of the gospel here. There's no conversion happening. This person that's unconscious on the donkey has nothing to offer the Samaritan. Isn't that interesting? No guarantee of like, hey, I'll pay you back. Thank you so much for the ride. This is amazing. I'll Venmo you later. Right? None of that guarantee is happening in this moment. This is all him giving out of his own capacity and maybe beyond. We don't know what the Samaritan has and doesn't have. Right? Giving beyond himself to the very end with absolutely no guarantee. He probably decided in his mind, this guy's never going to pay me back. He's going to wake up. He's going to find out it was me who helped him and you know, he's going to peace out. Right? It's probably what's going to happen. So the Samaritan goes the extra mile and does it all. Here's what I think is is happening here. Risk. The Jericho Pass from Jerusalem to Jericho, famous, famous road, right? Gnarly, gnarly road. People get jumped there and mugged and left for dead all the time. It's kind of a a regular deal. Maybe that's why the priest and Levi were like, man, can't get involved there. Sorry, bro, I'll pray for you. Walk on by. Dangerous to stop. This dude just got mugged, which means the person who did this to them cannot be far away. So if I step into that situation, I put myself into the crosshairs. The Samaritan does that. Risk to himself. Steps in. Says, I'm not really worried about what happens to me. I'm really concerned about what's going to happen to this person recognizing that maybe if he doesn't intervene, this person's not going to make it. So he steps up and he steps in. There's risk involved. And it's not just risk to himself. There is this thing that's going on because when we help people, we are constantly wondering, how much is enough? How much do I sacrifice in this moment to help this other person. And I think Jesus' challenge to us is that when we offer assistance, there's always risk involved. And that we should settle that within ourselves. That there's risk involved. That this actually might take something from me and cost me something, whether that's monetary, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, psychological, relational, something is going to be exacted from me in this exchange. And the Samaritan was okay with the cost of that before he even started. And I think that's something that we need to evaluate within ourselves. Because I know for me, right, in my most honest moments, I like to give to others what is easy, what is convenient, and what maximizes making me look good with minimum cost. Are you with me? Right? That sounds like a very human statement. Right? This, is, this is kind of how we roll. Right? I want to help the people that are like me and that I like and that like me because helping them is easy. It's easy. And I can help them this much, and they're going to appreciate me this much, and it's going to cost me this much. And I like how that math works out. I like how that economy works out because, like, I can do this all day. I can be a good Christian to those people. Easy. No problem. Right? And I think about those challenging places and spaces. Simple example. Some of you know I've been training as a hospital chaplain. I'll keep bringing this story up because this is where my Christianity is working itself out these days. And so I hang on the cl- in a room, and it's easy. I can walk into a room, and if another person is a Christian, man, if they're evangelical, it's even better. Easy. I read that on their face sheet, boom, piece of pie. Walk on in, pray a prayer, say the things. You could put that thing on autopilot. I'm out of there in less than 10 minutes. I could do that all day. Piece of pie. Right? Don't even need a cup of coffee after a meeting like that. But then you walk into a room where somebody doesn't believe what you believe. 
And they don't hold the same faith that you hold. And now we're going to have a very different exchange. Because sitting with you is uncomfortable. Having a conversation and trying to dig deeper into what you believe and what you think and what you believe is going on is going to be challenging to what I think and what I believe and what I think is going on. And you might have a very different view of what's happening to you than what I have. And I might know more about what's happening to you because I've read your chart and I know exactly what's going down with you physically and emotionally and situationally. And you might not acknowledge any of that stuff. You might lie to my face. And now we're going to have a really uncomfortable conversation. And the question becomes, how much am I willing to give to this person in that moment? How much time, how much energy, how much kindness, how much will how much faith, how much support, how much presence can I offer to them in that moment? Whether they want me there or ask me to be there or not. It's a different kind of exchange, right? And we start doing the math in our heads. I think Jesus is saying, don't put limits. Be careful how you put limits, maybe, on what it is that you can offer people. Because if you don't give sacrificially, if you don't offer yourself and your resources and faith, then maybe that says something about what you believe about the God that we worship. Something we should think about. Again, not easy, not simple, not a pat answer, right? But a challenge to what this scholar is asking. Who is my neighbor? What do I do with this person in the road? Jesus is exploding in the simplest way the scholar's ability to justify himself, to save himself by following the rules. And Jesus is telling him, you've got to go deeper. You've got to go deeper than this. Because there are laws about helping the poor. There are laws about racism. There are laws about religious tolerance. You know them all. It's not the knowing of the law that makes the doing of the law so hard. It's the transformation of the human heart that feels impossible to accomplish the task that we've been called to do. Amen? It's not because we don't know. I might argue that. It's because we don't know how. We don't know if we have it in us. Right? Maybe that's why my mom shielded my eyes. Because she didn't know what to do. Maybe not only that, maybe that's why I look away myself. You ever find yourself doing that? Looking away from a place of need? Because if you don't see, you don't know. And if you don't know, you won't do. But if you see, and if you hear, you might be more like this Samaritan than you think. And that's risky, and that's scary, and that's intimidating. The entire conversation turns on questions. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? How do you read it? Who is my neighbor? What do you think? Which of these, became, which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers and the man can't even say it. Do you notice this? This is fascinating. That's how you know it's a real story. He can't even respond. He can't even say Samaritan. It won't even come out of his mouth. It feels like a dirty word. He says the one who had mercy on him, right? It's like when you're complaining about your sibling and you won't use their name. It's like that person over there, right? Jesus' story puts a full stop for all time to all the variations of the question, who is my neighbor? And from that time right down to the present, the question is this. Will you be a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor. The who we can sort out. It's the will you be a neighbor? Jesus places the characters in the story the way that he does 
on purpose. He could have put the Levite in the street. He could have put the priest in the street. He could have put the Samaritan in the road, but he doesn't. He puts the Jew in the road. He puts the Jew in the road so that the expert of the law would see himself in this tremendous place of need. And he says, this is what you need to get sorted out. What's going to transform your life and change you from a self-justifying religious person to a person who is transformed by the sacrifice of grace is you must experience a moment of radical grace where nothing you can do inside yourself will save you except an experience of grace from somebody outside of yourself. You see it? You won't know how to help the man in the road until you've been the person in the road yourself. Your capacity to have compassion, your capacity to extend grace, your understanding of what it means to be transformed is absolutely and fundamentally tied to your acknowledgement that you are that person of need yourself. And that out of your powerlessness, Jesus has saved you. Not because you did something to deserve it, but because you were there. And he said yes. We become curious in the end. Did the Bible scholar become a neighbor and go on and do the loving commands that he knew so well? And we don't get an answer to that question. We only get our own sort of lingering response to the questions posed in the story. What are you going to do? How are we going to respond? Who is it that God has put in our lives today? We wrestle with, that we rankle with, that we need to figure out how to be a neighbor to in our lives so that we, friends, can do the difficult work of going and doing likewise. Let's pray.